Do good, avoid evil, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And you find that teaching in all the different um, kind of areas of Buddhist teaching. Cultivate the wholesome, abandon suffering states. That's what's purifying the mind. And so, of course, that's what we've been talking about with our whole uh, awareness, mindfulness practice, how the steadiness of awareness naturally allows wisdom to arise. And as Steve has said, it's the wisdom that ultimately purifies the mind. We've been talking about that a lot. But I also want to talk tonight about the fact that the purification of heart, of mind, is not only from meditation, but the way the Buddha spread out his sasana, spread out his teaching, is that all aspects, all aspects of our life, all aspects of his teaching are really uh, partaking of this purification of mind and heart, of cultivating the wholesome and helping to change the habits of our mind and heart from our so comfortable ones, so comfortable and friendly of wanting and aversion and delusion, to change those to pure, wholesome ones, which actually are much more happiness-producing, even in the moment. And then when I, um, even though my first um, training in, in Vipassana came in Asia, uh, in the Goenka system, still most for some years, it was mostly in the form of retreats, just retreats, you know, not any cultural container for it. And so the retreats like this, we learned the bhavana, the meditation, the cultivation of awareness, which really is the strongest, most powerful direct route to awakening, to purification, to happiness, no question. But it doesn't exist alone as if it's not in the rest of our life. And so even though we hear about uh, the three pillars of the Buddha's teaching, which is dana, generosity, the practice of them, the practice of sila, or non-harming behavior, which we took the precepts, and bhavana, mental cultivation, in all the different ways that we've talked some about. And we would hear about dana and sila, it wasn't really, I never really um, learned it as a practice, you know, I mean, the, the, the beauty, the joy, the depth of um, embracing the practice of generosity, the practice of sila as a way of life and not just to do it so that I could meditate better, which is sort of how we would take it on in those days. We have to follow the precepts because then you don't feel remorse, which is true. That's in the suttas. And I want to not feel remorse so I can have better meditation states. All of that's true, just a little bit, you know, askew in the motivation. But So all the aspects of the teaching. And today in the, um, in the groups, it makes me also want to talk about this. And I want to, specifically, I'm going to talk about the, the practice of generosity as... as a practice of liberation, of awakening. But I also realized that in terms of the steadiness of mindfulness, really starting to explore the defilements as Steve was talking about with incredible interest. I was so 
proud to see that from everybody. So happy to see the defilements. I can't wait for the next one, right? (laughs) Exploring them. (laughs) Once in a while, you might really feel like that when you're bored, right? But the starting to realize the steadiness of awareness will, of course, reveal the conditions that come together that, that create a, a kalesha defilement arising in the moment, how it comes together, how it falls apart. But what's important is to keep the steadiness of awareness to notice equally important the moments when there's not defilement. Yes, there are. And we can get so, you know, we could almost be too afraid of seeing the, the pleasant, we say the pleasant, and we get in cling, so we just pull back from it, and we're so interested in the defilements, we get a little skewed. That it's important to recognize that the steadiness of awareness sees all of it, all of it. Just wanted to bring that out. Um, and purifying the mind is both seeing how the unwholesome creates suffering, not by hating it, but by being with it, but also recognizing how the simple attention awareness with the wholesome actually strengthens and helps it grow. This is also just natural. It's just a natural uh, effect. So that's what I want to talk about a bit from the Dalai Lama. When the mind is completely free of negative emotions and tendencies, it understands and knows all phenomena. It is only because there are obscuring veils between the mind and its object that we are unable to know all things. Once these veils have been removed, no new power is needed. Seeing and being aware is the nature of the mind itself. As long as the mind exists, it has the ability to know. But this ability does not reveal itself until all obscurations have been removed. This is what it means to attain enlightenment. But what we can experience and have, important to recognize, as well as when we're, how the defilements work to obscure, we can experience moments when those obscurations aren't there and with the natural nature of the mind to see and know. And no new power is needed. It's just nature. That's what we've been saying all along. So the three pillars of the Buddha's teaching, dana, sila, bhavana, bhavana, mental development, are all about transforming our suffering habits of mind purifying the mind, strengthening the wholesome habits, not like secondary practices. But again, it's important as I talk about generosity, I'll be talking about it from the point of view of uh, the quality in the mind, in the heart, because that's really, the mind is what leads to speech and action, not so much we have to give or that, but what's going on inside of us. And so we learn to trust in the steady awareness of the wholesome, of the beautiful, or just recognizing those moments. It doesn't have to be generosity when it is a little glimpse of sort of nibbana <laughs> heading in the direction of pure mind. It's important to recognize that. This is from 
Ajahn Buddhadasa, someone reminded me of him today. He was a, a great Thai forest <clears throat> monk, uh, died in the last, uh, end of the last century. I spent some time with him um, when I was a nun. He was a bit within, within the Thai Theravada Buddhist tradition, which is, and then the Burmese, which is, you know, rather restricted. Within that, he was a radical, okay? You guys might not find what he says very radical, but within that tradition at that time, <laughs> he was very radical. And so this is from a, just a little short from an article of his where he's talking about Nibbana for everyone. So already that was radical at that time. Okay. He says it may be summed up that Nibbana is the coolness, coolness of mind resulting from the extinction of defilements. And when we look into the fact that defilements are compounded things, conditioned experience, things that have birth and death. So this shows that defilements occur when the causal conditions come together. And when those causal conditions are not present, defilements simply cease to exist. So this is a moment-to-moment experience. Have you noticed a moment when a defilement simply ceases to exist? Yeah? And it's important to stay aware in that moment, not assume. We, we often look away and think, well, that defilement just went underground. And when a similar-looking one emerges later, and we say, well, that's been hanging around all day. Here it is again. This is how I always am. And it, we get really worn down by it. Kind of not giving equal attention or weight somehow to those moments when the defilement wasn't there. Somehow, okay, that's a fluke, that's whatever, but here it is again. And as, as Punjaji is a teacher I, I knew in India, so it's like we take the past and put it on our shoulder and drag it around with us like a corpse. And that's what we're doing sometimes with our stories, with our defilements, with this is what I'm suffering from so much. Say, so, well, is it happening now? No, it's not, but it was and it will and it, you know, it's so notice those moments of coolness. Oh, here he goes. This is Buddha Das again. Anyone can see, he was kind of funny, anyone can see that if defilements are with us all day and night, every second without ceasing, who could ever stand it? <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Under such conditions, living things must either die or become insane and die anyway. <laughs> so you get a sense he's like in there, right? He knows what he's talking about. So let us consider well the fact that one survives because there are periods when the fires of defilement are not burning. As a matter of fact, we could say that these periods last longer than when the fires are burning. Okay, that's a task. Check it out. So this, he calls this periodical nibbana or momentary nibbana. We have periods of rest, physically and mentally, which refreshes us. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nibbana? So he's saying, pay attention to it. Be appreciative, not grasping, but feel how just those moments I would call it, it's not only just the steadiness of awareness, because we can be aware, and the awareness is clear and pure and aware of defilements. It won't have quite that same pure feeling as when the mind, the chitta, really doesn't have a defilement in it at that moment and there's awareness, and we tend to go, oh, that was such a lovely moment, everything is so beautiful, whatever. But notice just how that 
the mind, the heart feels. Just this, I don't know how to say it, purity. Somebody said to me once, I really liked the way she put it. She's like, it's like the mind and heart feel squeaky clean. Just for that moment. And, and on a retreat, you tend to have a lot. And we tend to think it's because oh, the, the perceptions are so vivid. And they do, they get more vivid. And the flowers are so beautiful. And the deer, you know, and whatever. And that's true. But then turn around and just notice. Just like we want to notice how the defilements are coloring perception and the resultant thought and action. Notice how the purity in that moment of mind and heart feels. Just get familiar with it. Don't take it personally, but just get familiar with it so we recognize it more. We can start to trust it more. And steady sati, steady mindfulness and awareness is what naturally reveals, just as it reveals how the defilements fool us all the time. So from that perspective, I want to talk about um, the actual deliberate practice or cultivation or recognition of the quality of generosity as a, as a transformer of our habits of consciousness. And the Buddha, when, as I said, he made the three pillars of his teaching, generosity, conscious conduct, and mental cultivation, but almost whenever he'd start teaching, he would tend to start by talking about generosity to people. So it wasn't just some kind of throwaway thing. And in fact, he set up his whole sangha, the sangha of monks and nuns, how it would work. He set it up um, based on working together with the lay people with generosity. It said that the the sasana consists of four people, ordained women, ordained men, and lay women and laymen. And you need all four types to work together. And he set them up to be connected with one another. And it still works today in, in countries where there's um, ordained men and women in the Buddhist tradition. It's working. <laughs> Sometimes it's working better than others. But um, where what, what binds them together is generosity. He says, monks, the householders are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicine in times of sickness. And you, O bhikkhus, so this is nuns and monks, are very helpful to the householders as you teach and share with them dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Thus, monks, the spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. So he set it up. So laymen and women and ordained women and men mutually support one another for their mutual crossing of the flood and freedom from suffering. And it was set up, and it still is so, in um, Buddhist countries that monks, and at that time also nuns, bhikkhunis, in terms of food, you know, would go out every day with an alms bowl to whatever community they were in and can only, and the food is just offered. It's not specific to that monk. You don't ask a specific person. They just walk with their eyes down. And they still do this today. Early in the morning, go out in a line with their alms bowl, eyes down, barefoot, always barefoot. And the lay people, not everyone, whoever wants to, they know when it's going to be. And they come running out and they're standing there. Often it's just with a little bowl of rice. That's all they can afford, at least places I've been in Burma. 
Um, I mean, there's all kinds of stories we won't go into it. But anyway, little bowls of rice or sometimes a curry or whatever. And as the monks come, they just put some into each bowl and then the monks walk on. It's really, I don't know, I, I must have somehow been there years ago in another lifetime because there's something about the early morning watching the line of the monks go out silently and the lay people lining up to offer that is just really beautiful. It touches my heart. But anyway, it's set up so they only can eat the food for the day on, on eight precepts. So nuns and monks don't eat after the noon meal and don't keep the food over. So back in the time of the Buddha, that meant that really the monks and nuns couldn't just go off and disappear and become complete hermits. They had to stay near a town, had to stay in connection with lay people. It's really, I I think, quite interesting. I mean, there could be times when one would go off on a retreat and maybe other monks would support, but generally for your whole life, the connection was there. It wasn't like making a community of ordained people who live completely separate out of this world. They're in, in this world. And the basis of that is generosity. And so when we look in, and this, is a, this isn't intellectual, but it is intellectual. I mean, obviously we can think this. When we look at the quality of generosity in our hearts, not about what you give or why, but what what is going on in the heart, in the mind that makes uh, an expression of generous offering, whatever it is. It can just be the generous, generous offering of loving kindness that you don't even say. This is outward movement of giving. So what's going on in the mind and heart at that time? Why is it so powerful and transformative? And of course, some of that's obvious when you're, when you're offering something that's the opposite of greed and possessiveness. So it's the actual movement of letting go, of renunciation, of really letting something go. It counters ill will, quite interestingly. You know, I mean, if you're really doing it as a real generosity, try to really give something wholeheartedly and feel a lot of ill will towards the person at the same time. Maybe we could like throw the thing at them and say, there, take it, you know, you. But that's not really generosity in terms of the wholesomeness in the mind and heart. And it counters our self-cherishing, covetousness tendency. Because in the movement of a generous action of mind, speech, or body, in that movement, there's a way of abandoning just my self-centered, self-cherishing and it's this reciprocal mutuality that there's the, the connectedness, the non-separation is actually what's emphasized, what's experienced as we act from generosity over and over. Shanti Deva, who wrote the you know, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, just has this one little quatrain I like so much about this. Even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. It's like having fed myself. That's the sense of the mutuality of real generosity. It's not about the thing or whatever is given. And the inner experience is one of actually a lot of happiness contentment, even gratitude. 
Ajahn Sumedho once said, I liked it, one of his throwaway remarks, at least it seemed like it when I heard, he said, oh, contentment and gratitude are very supportive states of mind for awakening. It's nice, huh? We're like, try, 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 see, see, see. Contentment, gratitude, which generosity deepens and fosters because it opens us out of sense of self, greed, and ill will to contentment and presence in this moment. So generosity is actually part of the path of liberating our minds and hearts. I spent a lot of time, well, I spent that year in Thailand, and I've spent um, quite a fair amount of time in Burma in the last 10 years or so. I mean, about a month, a year or more. And um, I think I mentioned the other night the, the, the nun Mechi Rungduan and how her, her, just her spontaneous generosity of offering her kuti at the, at the head nun as soon as any other nuns came kind of touched me. First, it just kind of confused me, befuddled me. I said, what? <laughs> Shouldn't she be you know, looking for perks? So it, it, it touched me, but I didn't quite get the depth of really what was going on. But the more time I've spent in Burma, and don't get me wrong, do, I am not idealizing this culture. There's a lot of stuff wrong, as in everywhere. But the majority of the Burman people are c- coming from the Buddhist tradition. And deeply ingrained in the Buddhist tradition is this uh, real commitment to generosity and to metta, but to generosity as a practice. And so being in that culture, one is just kind of surrounded by generosity. And what was the big surprise to me, I felt like it was a secret. I had never really learned about it in my life here. I mean, we, we think generosity is good. We like it. We like to be generous. And we think if I have more, I should give to someone who has less. It kind of tends to go in that way, you know. Um, and we can feel good about it, but if we feel too good, that's just being a little egotistical. You know, there's just some way. So what I was the big surprise to me is how um, joyful, really joyful, this practice of generosity is both for the giver and for the receiver. And how contagious this is. And it's a joy, not just the joy of, oh, I feel good, you know, of a kind of a, uh, a joy that you cling to, but it's the happiness again of the heart that's kind of released its holding for that moment, of the mind that in that moment is really experiencing, is touching the wholesomeness of non-clinging, the wholesomeness of non-self-referencing. And what, so what I really have come to love, and one of the things that feeds my heart every time I go to Burma, is that whatever else goes on, stuff like there's just generous actions of giving and receiving, spontaneous happening all the time, little ways, big ways, and the appreciation of it in both sides. People are looking for, it's called opportunities for generosity. That's what they call, oh, this is an opportunity for generosity. You know, and they'll get really happy. They like have their eyes out for opportunities for generosity, not only in the, in the nuns and the monks, but also with regular people. It just is part of the culture. And so it starts to seep in, and you start to get, feel, appreciate more and more the generosity, and actually the heart, the mind gets happier and happier 
you know. And again, it's not the happiness of holding on. I mean, one can twist anything. Okay, a defilement can slip in anywhere and twist anything. You could get into, you know, competitive generosity. But mostly it's not that. And um, they say generosity gives us happiness in three times. When the motivation, when it first arises, here's an opportunity for generosity. Wow, that's the kind of happiness, the purity of mind and heart. We can feel that. Then in the actual offering, being really present, that's another moment or more of happiness in the doing. And later, in the recollection of it, and at the end I'll read a sutta from the Buddha where he recommends that, is again a way to consciously turn the mind towards the wholesome. And that can be really useful to us times, you know, when we're just drowning in the kalatia and the mindfulness isn't as strong enough. You know, those times we say we need to do skillful means. But there's enough wisdom to make the choice to say, okay, maybe I can just turn the mind to the wholesome. You can recollect your generous acts. So just right now, remember some generous thing you did. See if you can do that without your mind clocking through and going, that's not generous enough. (laughs) Just any little generous thing. You opened the door for somebody with a generous heart, not like hurry up, you know, with with a generous heart. Any little generous thing you did. Just remember it. Just take a moment and remember it and let yourself just feel it in in a wholesome way. Let yourself appreciate it. And if you really can't think of anything, think of something someone did that was generous to you and appreciate it in the same way. Just let it in for a minute. So this, this joyful, this contagious part, I feel I've learned so much about generosity as a practice, and I just will give you some little examples. There's a million. I, I, what I have to do when I prepare this talk is figure out which ones I want to use, which ones pop into my mind, just to give you a sense of how, so, it may or may not work for you, but how sometimes just hearing about it awakens the same happiness and generous spirit in ourself. That's what's so beautiful about the wholesome qualities. How can it awaken that in us? Because it's a natural effect of the pure heart and mind. It's not some weird, different thing. They're contagious, and we can let that in. So just um, tiny little things. I was up in, up in northern Burma one time years ago, and uh, there was a Western monk who was living in the area, and he was doing a kind of ascetic practice. He would always go barefoot. He wouldn't wear slippers, you know, trying to be tough. He liked it. And I was uh, riding in a little pony cart with the, the pony driver. This was years, years before they had motorcycles and stuff. And uh, there's another friend who spoke Burmese. And the pony cart driver, had been, he, he knew this monk who came on. He said, oh, I feel so sorry for him. He doesn't have any slippers. I really want to go and give him some slippers. And just, you know, he didn't even know this guy. He just saw him walking around. And this kind of immediate wanting to help to offer, you know, it's just so lovely. This year, um, in, in, in some monasteries or nunneries, if they can, they, there's like, can, can, one place where I stay often, there's uh, somebody donated money to build a building for a free clinic for the local poor villagers. 
So it just works on the weekend. It doesn't have much, you know, supplies at all. People donate the supplies, send the supplies from Malaysia or bring it when they go or whatever. And the way it works is on Saturday, doctors come, Burmese doctors come on their one day off and donate their time. And they work all day. A hundred or two hundred villagers come every day. And on Sunday, it's dentistry day. And all these young dentists, and I swear they look about 13, but all these young dentists come and they're donating their time. And it's intense, you know. They don't really, they can't, in in the free clinic, they really can't do very sophisticated dentistry. Let's leave it at that. But still, so you know, no one comes until it hurts so much, but they're there. And these, so these, these young people, they're donating their one day off to help. And this is not an uncommon phenomenon. So already that. So um, just last month, we were there and it's a meditation center. So a friend of mine who's, who's a Western nun, the scientific one who doesn't believe in David Lights, only now she does. And um, <laughs> she, she lives in this, in this meditation center and her job is taking care of the Western yogis who come, setting them up in rooms, helping them get toilet paper. It's actually quite a job, I must say. And um, so one of the, this Sunday afternoon, one of the others, a cavity fell out or her tooth blew up. One of those things where it really hurts and you, she had just come to Burma for the first time. And you, know, you can get really scared in a foreign country and you don't know where to go and you're just settling in. And so, she, so her tooth hurt, but her mind hurt more. Let's put it that way. And so Vera said, well, it's lucky it's Sunday. I'll take you over to talk to the dentist over here. So she took him over. And um, the dentist in charge was a, was a little bit older, a really lovely man, Vera was telling me. He said, well, of course I can't treat you here, but when I'm finished here, at like three in the afternoon, follow me into town, which is like an hour drive, to my office, and I'll open it up and do what I can. And it's not, not like, let me see, can I fit it into my calendar, and when will I have time? It's like immediately, right? And so they go in, and it's you know, a whole big afternoon thing, and so Vera's telling me to get to his office, go in. He, he did a, like a really great job. He had all the equipment. It was, it was quite a job. It wasn't just a little filling. I forget the details. You don't want to know anyway. And, and then of course he wouldn't take a cent. He wouldn't take any money. And the woman yogi noticed that there was a little, a little shrine, a little Buddha, a little photographs of this man's particular Burmese te- Buddhist teachers. And she looked around and goes, oh, this is what Donna is, isn't it? Because it was this joyful, I'm so happy to spend the rest of my afternoon fixing your teeth and I won't take a cent for it. And then he goes to Vera, now you sit down, let me check out your mouth, you know? <laughs> and it's this, it's this complete open generosity immediacy of spirit that, you know, our first tendency may be to feel shy or embarrassed, but that shuts down. That shuts down the mutuality. And there's so much joy in the giving that you, you really, you don't stay shy and embarrassed. You kind of open up and go, wow, how beautiful. Thank you so much. And there's this, um, this appreciation. And it's not like you think, well, now I have to go out and do something good. Maybe you do. But what happens is the, the wholesomeness lights up our heart and mind. So she was looking and go, oh, this is what Donna means. I've seen that happen so often with um, friends who haven't quite been in that situation before in so many different ways. And like, oh, 
after a meal with some nuns who are really poor and they're, they're running a school for 600 kids that they have to raise the money for every single month, living all together crammed into one little building because they tore down their other buildings to build this school for poor kids. And then they invite us and friends to lunch and lay out this huge spread that they would never eat themselves. And they're so happy doing it. And our friends go, oh, this is Donna. And you could see as the meal goes on, their smiles get bigger and bigger and they get happier and just there's a sense of connection with the nuns and there's a a, a happiness both ways. The next time, if you go back the next year and go and visit those nuns who did so much for you, they'll be so thrilled to see you. Oh, you're the one I made Mohinga for five years ago. I mean, that just happened recently. Yes, you're the one. I remember you. I made Mohinga for you. I'm so happy to see you. You know, you can't, you can't not let it in. You know, I mean, you'd have to really try hard. And as you start to let it in, you start to see, wow, the happiness is the happiness. It, it feels like the mind and heart is being cleaned out. It's being purified. And there's a lot of other suffering, difficult stuff that goes on. You feel like you can kind of be more present with it, be more open to it. It's really, um, I don't want to say profound, but it's really very powerful to see. So I mentioned, just to mention a couple more, that nun who started that school. We're getting to know more and more of these amazing women. They're nuns who, probably nuns since they're young girls, so their only education is from other nuns. So they can read and write, and they read the suttas, and they read Pali, and they study the Buddhist texts. And in some ways, the nunneries are almost like the safety net, the society safety net, particularly for poor young girls. You know, there's just nowhere else. Um, but we've met, I could say, at least eight right now. Of uh, There's lots and lots of nunneries. But nunneries where the, the head nun or one of the women will just have this vision that she needs to start a school to help these kids. Many of the nunneries, they take in small small little girls, either orphans or they're not orphans, they go back to their home village because we're around Yangon. And the parents beg them, the nuns, to take their little girls because they can give them a better education or they can at least make sure they have food, you know. And so they take these, so they, they're, they're, the place, one nun or right next door to where we stay, is packed. It's so crowded. And you go over and there's four sisters that are running it. They have about, two years ago, they had about 20 little girls then the next year we went, there's like 30 little girls. I mean, where are you going to put them? And so every night they do their chanting. They're chanting for about a half an hour. This is a really common thing all nuns and monks do. It's just over the wall from the, the same meditation center I was staying, I mentioned. And so some um, women yogis who were there from Indonesia, I believe, were hearing these young voices chanting every night, every night. And she got so inspired. So she went around, just went around to look, and she was fairly wealthy. And she saw all these little girls and was talking to the, the head nuns, I guess through a translator. And they said, yes, and we're going back to our home village in the Delta, which has been devastated by the cyclone. And we know they're going to ask us to take 10 or 15 more little girls. There's like nowhere for them to go, right? And this woman goes, well, well, you need a new building, don't you? and gives them the money to build a new building. That's how it works. That's how Donna works. So there's many places like that. That's not even a school. That's just a a nunnery. But there's many like that, and suddenly the head nun will just get it in her head. Okay, I need to start a school. These amazing women. 
that do this all on all on all on generosity. So I'll tell you one: Dawsumanachari. You know the Appamata school. Steve knows it well, and so actually she's the nun who many years ago made mohinga for me. So she's been around where where we stay for quite a few years. And there's a small nunnery, maybe 15 women, and, and frankly, she always kind of seemed a little depressive to tell you the truth. We didn't never thought, but you know, fine. And、um, <laughs> I mean, I'd be depressed too if I was living like that. But so maybe two or three years ago, three years ago, she came over.、Um, To talk to the, the, the two Western nuns I knew, because a lot of、uh, friends had sent money in through these nuns, and then we were offering it to other nuns. And so she knew that it had been going on for a few years. So she, and it's, mostly they don't, people don't come and say, "I want money." You know, you just go offer, and it's just this, this beautiful thing. But anyway, she came over towards the end of our time, and she just seemed very intense, very set on it. And she said, "I have to start a school." You know, I really want to start a school. It's what I need to do. I've just been,、uh, you know, meditating on it. I have, and so, kind of. Well, and didn't really think she could get it together, you know, but offered what we could, which was enough to just to start it to just build like a little lean-to shack. You should see, it's like they don't build a big building and then they make a little kind of thatch roof and find a bunch of chairs, and the next thing you know, there's a hundred kids there. I'm not exaggerating. And they find the money every month to hire regular teachers. It's not a lot, God knows. So she, the next year, we came back, and that's what she'd done. They'd torn down the building that all the nuns were living in, and they'd all moved into this one tiny other little building so that they could build this kind of thatch roof place. She had over a hundred young students. She decided to do it just for the little boys and girls both in the area who were too poor to go to the government school, the ones like grades one to four, because the others walked. Farther, like half an hour, to this other place I talked about. But in the rainy season, it's too hard for the little ones. So she had started this, and then she'd found support from some other Burmese companies. There's some Burmese companies that actually have a specific wing that just goes around offering dana to to worthy that start to start schools like this to pay for teachers for three years in a row, and then in the fourth year, the nuns have to find it themselves. They have to have community support. But it's like a whole company that half of what they do is that, and the rest is like you know being an, a cosmetic import firm or something. It's really amazing. So the, so this next year, anyway, she came back and was talking to us again through Aryanani, who speaks Burmese, so we could really get the translation. She looked transformed. Dosumanacherry. This was t- two years ago, I think. She was just her face was bright. She was beaming, and this is. A translation of what she said. She said,、um, "She said the idea to start the school last year was so urgent in my mind that I couldn't eat or sleep well, and now it's happening, and so I'm no longer worried. Even though I now must work so hard, you know, and they demolish their building, and we have to work so hard to find support every month for the teachers' salaries, for the equipment to get wells, to get toilets, and take care of all the kids." She said. But all the energy is for these children and for the school, and so my mind is calm and happy. Her mind, and she looked it. Her mind was calm and happy. She was radiant. It's really interesting, the contagious quality of these wholesome states and the onward leadingness. This is Ajahn Pasano writing in the Island. 
but, he, but he's, he's commenting on a sutta, a naturalness to the training, to the cultivation of these basic qualities leads naturally to deeper qualities. So, when one is generous and delights in giving, the heart tends to be satisfied and joyful. This supports the development of virtue, as a heart that is satisfied and contented easily inclines to restraint and composure. With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. Meditation progresses more smoothly and the mind naturally brightens, making it suitable for seeing things as they truly are. That's the difference in the quality of happiness, of upliftingness of the wholesome mind is that it's onward leading. It makes it suitable, you know. It sets the conditions for seeing things as they really are. Different from, you know, the happiness of getting what we want. It's just different. So much more contagious. And it is contagious, that happiness. I guess last year, uh, a group of people were had brought, had brought in a bunch of money, it's like maybe $25,000, and you had to go to money changers. Cause it, now sometimes you can change in banks, but then no, there's no way. So you work it out, you, friends we know would get the money changer in and they would come in with these like, you know, stacks. I mean, because Burmese money is like big, so like at that point, you'd have, I'm, I'm not kidding, giant stacks of money like this they would bring in. And it's all, counting it. It's a whole process. It takes half the day, you know. And it just feels sleazy, you know. It feels like you're doing a drug deal or something. And we're giving our money and they're looking at it, you know, because if there's one little dot on the bill, forget it. They won't take it, you know. So they're looking at it through eyeglasses in these machines. And then they give us these crummy bills that, that completely fall apart if you touch them, right? <laughs> one time I tried to joke with them and said, no, we want good ones too. <laughs> anyway... So you're there all day and we're just, you know, just doing it. But it's just normal. That's what happens. And it's kind of youngish men, you know, with their phones. Every two minutes they're getting a phone call and going on and doing all their business and going through the thing. And so, okay. So we did that and left. And um, the, the, at, the, at the bed and breakfast, the woman who was kind of hosting it, who does a lot for us. So later, uh, and, and they're very big supporters of many of the monasteries, this woman and her family. So later she called um, Viranyani a couple days later and said, okay, I have the, the rest of the money that hadn't quite come through and there's someone donated $350 to bring it up to $1,000. And we thought, oh, it's a B&B where a lot of yogis stay, going to practice. It must be someone there, but we didn't know who. And we went back and asked her. We kind of had to pull it out of her. And she said, oh, it was the money changers. They had been listening to us talking and we were just chatting back and forth about how this money's going to be building toilets for these nuns. I mean, just like that. And so they donated $350. And stuff like that blows us away, you know, and you let it in because it's like you get like this, we call it like little, we call it a little rapture moment, you know, where we get like a little chill. Like, oh, that's just so beautiful, you know. Let it in because it also brightens the mind and heart. So these, these things are um, happening all the time. I'll stop. I have 10 million more examples, but I'll stop.
the most important aspect, again, of the generosity is the quality in our mind and heart. So it's the motivation, not the action, right? It's not like the more you give, the better the generosity is. It's not about that at all. It's about the, 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 the open-handedness, open-heartedness in the mind and heart. And there's a great story of this from, uh, about Anattapindaka from the time of the Buddha. Anattapindaka was known as the Buddha's um, most devoted and most generous supporter. He's mentioned often in the suttas. He's the one who, when he first met the Buddha, he was so overcome with faith to have met him that he went and, and bought at a huge price this beautiful park called the Jeta Grove. And if you read the suttas, many, many, many of the suttas take place in this Jeta Grove that he presented to the Buddha and his Sangha. So Anattapindaka is like the, um, the symbol of generosity for men. You could say there's also an equivalent female one. But so this story about him, about how the importance of the generosity is the motivation, not the outward appearance. So Anattapindaka, um, one of the things he did when the monks were dwelling nearby to where he lived, is he would, every morning, he would send rice gruel, and then for lunch he would have like, 500 monks, they would say, 500, Andy Olensky, uh, the scholar at BCBS says 500 means a lot. It just means a lot of monks and nuns. But so every day he would have, invite all these monks to his home for the main meal and prepare this incredible meal and offer it himself out of this generosity of his heart. And the king of that area, King Pasanadi, who was also a follower, a disciple of the Buddha, he heard of it. And he wanted to imitate him, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. So he also set up to have alms every day for 500 monks. But after a while, he heard that, um, he learned from his servants that the monks would come and accept the offering, but then they would take the food and they would go into the city with it and give it to their supporters in the city who would then offer it back to them. And, and so King Pasenadi goes, why are they doing that? You know, this food is very tasty. It's really better than his. So the Buddha explained to the king that in the palace, the courtiers, the servants that distributed the food, they did it without any inner feeling. They were just following orders, you know, as if they were cleaning out a barn or taking a thief to court or just doing anything. He said they lacked faith and they had no love for the monks. Many of them even, you know, thought that the monks were just parasites living by the labor of the working population. So he said, when anything was given in that spirit, no one could feel comfortable accepting it, even when the meal was made of the most delicious food. So in contrast, the faithful householders of the city, like Anattapindaka and Wisaka, the, the woman generous one, welcomed the monks, regarded them as spiritual friends, really appreciated them. A humble meal provided by a friend would be worth much more than the most sumptuous meal offered by someone who did not give in the real spirit of generosity. And one last little quotation from the Buddha about that. Ah, yes. Even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup, you know, you just rinse out your bowl, into a village pool or a pond, thinking, whatever, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be an act of generosity, a source of merit. 
I love that. Because it's the sense that the generosity is just that, that spirit that just is connecting and offering freehand whatever we're doing, you know? And we can, at times, when there's enough steadiness of wisdom to see, you know, we can incline our mind to the wholesome in this way, in a way that really helps to strengthen the wholesome and helps to purify the mind from Kalatia, just in little ways. And it has to be sincere, but even like opening the, I don't, I don't want to make it like get crazy around here. <laughs> the next few days. So, so don't, don't like get all whacked out trying to do generous things for each other, okay? <laughs> Keep on giving each other. You're giving each other the generous silence is a great act of generosity to each other, okay? So I'm going to give a little example, but this is really a little example. Just when you hold the door for someone, right? Okay, not the thing. You stand there for 45 minutes and then they have to hurry because you're holding the door. Okay, <laughs> I don't mean that. But more just when you do it spontaneously, to have the awareness in your mind of just the appreciate, you know, that's, oh yeah, may, may this be helpful for that person. Something like that. Rather than, than just being kind of thoughtless about it. Do you see what I mean? It's like, it's such a source of happiness for us. It's not like you're looking at them saying, see what I'm doing? <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> just little things, you know? You're standing in the food line and there's only two oranges and there's seven people behind you and you really want an orange, but you know, I can let it go, let them have an orange. No one else even knows. But you could have such a sense of appreciating that act of generosity. It's really an uplifting, a purification in the mind. In that moment, it's a letting go of clinging and self-cherishing. It's so little, you know? But it brings happiness just to do it. And the more that we practice it, the more um, the mind inclines in that direction. And it's a very active way of purifying. Editing. Okay. So as I said, there's the, the three times that the act of generosity brings the happiness of purity, the happiness of upliftness. And that's in the first thought of it, the first motivation. Let it in, feel it. In the act of doing it, doing whatever act of generosity it is with, with awareness, really doing it conscious, not making a big show, as I said, no one else knows, but, but just really bringing the same awareness to the generosity as we might bring to the craving or the aversion. Don't be afraid you're going to get into ego, egotism about it. You might. So what? Awareness will notice that. We don't have to be, af- be afraid of it because we'll notice. And it'll feel different immediately. And this is one of the ways we see how Kalesa's cloud. So, you know, you don't, you don't take the orange and you go, oh, and you just kind of feel a moment of happiness in the recollection of the act of generosity. It's lovely. And then later, I am so incredibly generous. It doesn't feel the same at all. You don't need to beat yourself up about it. Just pay attention. Wisdom will let you know the difference. You don't have to figure it out. So this act of reflecting on past acts of your own generosity and also your own uh, conscious sila, non-harming conduct is something the Buddha recommends. And I think uh, maybe we don't do it that often. It's a real, it's a conscious use of wise thought, conscious contemplation. 
So, you know, in little ways, I think when I was, um, the, the last few years of my parents' lives, when I spent a lot of time taking care of them, and it's easy, it was easy to go into feelings of, you know, you can never do enough. Whatever you do, it's never going to be enough because you can't make it better. So it could be easy to go into feelings of either exhaustion or just feeling bad I couldn't do enough, my mind settling on the, the times that I left, you know, instead of staying, and I, why couldn't I have moved to Atlanta and lived there for, you know, whatever. The mind can go there with our tendency to self-judge and self-blame. But try the other. Try going to the sense of really acknowledging and appreciating all the actions of care and generosity. That's not, it's not the same thing as saying, I'm so great. But it's just letting in, oh, those things that I did, those times that it brings in a, a sense of metta, a sense of upliftness. You can tell the difference, you know, and it actually makes one happier and, and more willing to offer more, to do more. And it changes the whole dynamic. But just reflecting on it is really very powerful. So this is the sutta. Well, just this one, one aspect. He's talking about different reflections. But he says this about reflecting on your own past conscious virtuous actions. But I'm going to read the one on generosity. It's the same. So he's talking to lay people. He's talking to Mahanama, a layman. There's the case where you recollect your own generosity. It is a gain, a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness. I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, Her mind is not overcome with greed, is not overcome with aversion, is not overcome with delusion. You get that? I'll read it again, because this is the immediate moment-to-moment practice. At any time, when one is recollecting their own generosity, their mind at that moment is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind, her heart heads straight based on generosity. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the meaning, a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. Basically, any time. And this is, you could feel like it's cheating because it's a happy practice. Me sit and think about how generous I've been. And doesn't that kind of go the wrong way from what we think we should be doing? But try it and see what happens. In any moment, your mind then is not overcovered by greed, hatred, or delusion. Amazing. I think I'll end there. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. 